Greetings, traveller. My name is RJ Bailey and welcome to this Soundwave Series 1, Episode 1. Now, just to get this out there, I have struggled and indeed do struggle and lose sleep over whether or not to call this Series 1 or Season 1. But since StellarCon later is largely geosynchronous above the UK, I'll use the British term. So, now you've heard all this bump, you know what it means either way when I say Series 1. Now, also, I have a confession to make to start off the show, right? It has taken literally this many years of my life as being a sci-fi nerd to notice when abbreviating this episode, Series 1, Episode 1, for my file naming convention, S1E1, it bore striking resemblance to E1M1, in that most famous and critically acclaimed of science fiction titles of all time, Doom. Of course, E1M1 is at the start of Doom, and I've realised Doom is divided into episodes, and E1M1 must mean Episode 1, Mission 1. It's taken me this long to realise that, and if you've not already had my speculative fiction credentials completely destroyed for you already, then let me tell you what Soundwave is all about. Throughout the course of these transmissions, you'll be treated to some of the finest sci-fi audio content in the known galaxy, though I, I wouldn't stretch myself to universe. The galaxy is big enough. There will be stories and poetry written by some of the sharpest minds and performed by such talented voice actors that they will take your emotions to such heights that you may well become a public enemy number one to the Tetragrammaton Council. Yes, I do like that movie, actually. I will also be chatting with some of those said sharp minds in Sonic Space, a place where myself will be discussing all manner of sci-fi topics with them through informal but in-depth interviews. There'll also be a fair amount of off-topic talk as well, especially when the extended interviews are released via Patreon. Every few episodes, you'll also be treated to one of the excellent audio dramas created by our audio drama superstar group, The Infinitesimals. If you've listened to our pilot episode, which you might as well, since you're listening to a podcast on a podcast player right now, you'll have already heard one. And all this will be wrapped together by me, your mildly tolerable host, with a smattering of astro waffle that ultimately lowers the tone, degrades the piece as a whole, and undermines any dramatic impact the stories or poetry might have on you. This episode, our story and poem are linked by Starlight and Death, which is a fantastic name for a story all of its own now that I think about it. Sue Guyford will be kicking us off with a narration of Barry Sharman's emotional The Starkitect, before Debbie Cannon gives sonic life to J.S. Watts' deceptive poem, Starscape. The second half of the show is the sonic space, where I am interviewing Arthur C. Clarke award-winning author Anne Charnock about her books, travel influences, and more. And then finally, we'll be opening the nuclear blast doors as the record label has allowed us permission to play out with the anime-inspired giant-slaughtering music from some Dutch masters of symphonic metal. So, without further astro-waffling... 
Architect by Barry Sharman Read by Sue Guyford When he'd first presented Evie with the design, she'd told him it was impossible. But he'd smiled, like he knew she wouldn't be able to resist the challenge, the unprecedented task. A year to the day, he was heading to the house to pick up the keys. She smiled at the terminology. It helped her retain a sense of scale. After all, what she'd done here was as much madness as science. Evie watched from her monitor as Carl's shuttle ferried him down the light bridge. He would be alone here after she'd gone. Her engineers had worked miracles to do this. Carl's last message had said he'd pay her double for hitting his craziest deadline. He was already paying her more than she could quite comprehend. The light bridge danced on the screen, a beam of pure white energy phased against an obsidian background, the only way the screen could even attempt to relay the information. When she was gone, he would deactivate it and be cut off, for all time. She tried to remember how the structure had appeared to her on entry. A dark marble tower inside of six force walls that kept the radiation out. So beautiful. The docking lights flashed on the terminal, telling her he was in the hatch. She looked around the white room she'd just finished decorating, filled with books sculptures, paintings, some landscapes, but mostly of women. Such a civilised cave to be walled up in. It was hard to feel she hadn't just wallpapered in echoes. She watched the cameras as he entered the airlock. His spacesuit was completely black, and its tinted visor left you practically blind. The suit did most of the walking. On the schematics it provided, he'd have had some concept of the building as he'd approached, some understanding of the massive undertaking they'd completed. That was important, that their work be acknowledged. No one had attempted anything like this before. She couldn't just forget that. She still had questions, but his motivations were none of her business, she couldn't forget that, either. Evie watched as he left the airlock and started to remove his suit. Carl Hauser. She remembered their first meeting in his hotel room on Europa. A 105th floor suite with generous gravity and subtle recalls to Earth. I don't understand your madness, she'd said after he told her what he wanted her to do. I mean, has anything been diagnosed? He'd given her a thin smile, probably reserved for just these reactions. Sitting across from him, she'd leaned back and winced at her bluntness. Sorry. He understood his designs were demanding. 
I know what I'm asking you to do. Can it be done? She'd walk to the window, her dark dress contrasting with the stars beyond. Black leaves were woven into her silver hair. The latest fashion on Europa was, according to Carl, nostalgia and guilt. These remnants pervaded and contaminated everything. His views weren't unfamiliar to her. Eventually, she'd turned. It can be done. But it's... vandalism. He'd given her an even thinner smile. I want to build a room that I can be alone in, entirely on my terms. That's all. But why this? That was the question he'd never answered. Evie waited for him in his new office, dressed casual before prepping for her suit. She tried not to think of the harsh technology around her, the walls buzzing, the shields dancing in their lurid quantum interactions. Her bare feet pressed into the cold floor and she embraced the sensation. The feeling, so delicate, could so easily be lost. Carl smiled as he entered the room. Not an old man, but his youth had left him. His hair was fading to silver when once it had been black as the space between stars. He still stood tall, lean. They exchanged a firm handshake. It's everything I wanted, he said, looking around. And more. She handed him a document, a symbolic passing over. Here it is, she said. A home carved into a star. Now that's privacy. She allowed a tight smile. A look he gave her told her he appreciated the scale of the achievement. Thank you for this. Just a shame it's a tomb. When he didn't respond, she added, What if you change your mind? I want to be alone. His tone was clear and firm. Beyond this, there was no explanation owed. She shook her head. They had no relationship beyond this contract, only really knew each other by their reputations, but as she walked past him, she stopped. This had become far more than curiosity. She had glimpsed something in these walls, in his designs, something in pain. Please tell me why I built this. Why am I leaving you here? His expression became raw as if he was struggling to evade thoughts that had unbearable depths. He looked at her until it seemed to hurt. You're from one of the colonies? Evie nodded. Trans-Neptunian. He looked away, glancing at the paintings with something strangely wistful. Some of the landscape weren't Terran, but otherworldly skies framed in optimistic strokes. Took my family out there, he said. Wife? A daughter? Should be your age now. Went through the heliopause, headed to the far colonies, 
I was going to help design the new sun. Her eyes widened. To his design, the floors were black. He stared down at a reflection that haunted the marble. They never made it, he said softly. And I never wanted to make it alone. Now every person I meet out there is a ghost that reminds me of another ghost. Nothing is as real as what I lost. I want no part of it. He looked around. Whether he was moved, pained, or overwhelmed, she couldn't tell. But I was determined to build this. She wanted to live in the stars. I told her we could live in a star, and I never got to show her what I meant. Evie understood that plans fell apart. She hadn't gone into space to carve up stars. She gave the room a last, extensive look, then gave him a final nod. Okay. Suiting up, Evie crossed the light bridge and watched her feet hover over eternity. Ahead, her crew were waiting on the artisan. She thought of the moment when she'd punch in the numbers and kill the bridge forever. No one would be able to reconnect it. No one could summon it again. She looked out and saw the black pulse of the stars beyond the barrier of the bridge. Light engulfed in darkness, engulfed in light. Endless. Like hurt. Had he made a grave of his life or carved away a piece of immortality all in their name? Was this the only thing left to him that felt like peace? She climbed into the artisan's airlock and waited for the decontamination to end. Stopping at the first terminal she found, she started to enter the signal. It felt wrong to linger, to dwell. There was no ceremony, but she paused before sending. She gave him a moment, a wish for his sanctuary to outshine his sorrow, then sealed off the star. The monochromatic display flickered, and she saw the black lines of the interior structure fade, like scars that vanished with time. Evie watched until it was all white, then turned and walked away. What Barry Sharman's story there, the star architect, has done is simply demonstrate how science fiction can reflect the human psyche and human emotions like no other. It's a particular aspect of sci-fi I'm interested in, the way that you can take abstract concepts like depression and loneliness and turn them into a thing that really exists within the world. And in this case, I don't know if you've ever been through uh, a, a particularly bad trauma, if you've ever lost someone dearly close to yourself. But if you have, 
um, I, I personally have, which is why I feel I can talk about this. I'm not just imagining it, don't worry. Uh, it, you do go, you know what? I've had enough now, thanks very much. I just want to go and find the place where I can be away from literally everything in the universe. And that's what Barry Sharman has been able to create better than I could ever put into words uh, with his story, The Star Architect. And that particular reading I enjoy a lot, Sue Guyford, because she has the hint of like a regional ac accent in there. And I think that lends an earthiness to it and a reality to it. When you hear a pristine cut glass voice narrating stories like that, sometimes they suit very well. But with this, I feel like by having that earthiness to it, it gives us something to hold on to, something of the everyday within this story about building a secluded space within a star and staying there for the rest of your life. And really, there there comes some extra power, some extra emotional power in that particular reading of it. And that's why I think audio stories are, are fantastic, because there is that added dimension that a narrator can bring to it. I highly recommend checking out Red Rising, written by Pierce Brown. It was recommended to me by Sam Dolan, and um, I tend, I much prefer to to listen to audiobooks. Narrated by Tim Gerard Reynolds, he's got an Irish accent, which took me a while to get used to. I've never heard uh, an audio novel narrated by an Irish person at all, never mind one which has got a lot of science fiction Roman influence. You know, when you when you have Roman, generally you go with a, a classical English accent. But the fact he has an Irish accent, this is never implied in the book, but what it brings to it is kind of like a folksy, old-worldy vibe to the underclass that are featured in the Red Rising universe. And that's exactly what Sue Guyford has managed to do here. Anyway, from one cheery piece of writing to another one. Please enjoy this poignant, thoughtful, and brilliantly performed poem. Starscape by J. S. Watts, read by Debbie Cannon. If I were writing then, I'd take my stylus, pencil, e-vice, to a woodland clearing, up where the hills bolstered me like pillows. I'd lie down on my back, wondering at the distant stars through the lens of the encircling trees, and my poetry would be landscape, hills, rivers, trees, and soil, the places where our roots lie buried. Out here, my roots float free, snaking through the cosmos in search of a new Eden to anchor them, but finding only more space. My poetry is starscapes, black expanse of emptiness, with pinpricks of raw perfection, all different, all the same. Infinity is relentless without life's gravity to anchor it. There is no love amongst the stars, 
just a limitless absence of hope. No land where I can sink my feet. Planets are pretty marbles. Stars. Cold, exploding beauty. The crystal sphere of each black hole a marvel of endless consumption. This ship's reinforced stellar hull, as thin as bubbles, compared to the starscape it drifts aimlessly through. The universal ellipse reflects only itself, endlessly repeating the extremism of creation, echoes of a promise kept once in the past, and maybe again, eons beyond this future. My mind's eye, the only lens through which I can wonder distantly at our lost frail world, the unseen curves of space circle my fading muse, like the starving dog pack circled the last prey on Earth. Listener to the pilot episode, Richard said he thought it'd be good to have some breathing room after the um, stories or poems um, that we have on this show. So here you go. <clears throat> okay. Hope hope that was in. If you want more breathing room, uh, gladly will do. Give me a tweet on Twitter at RJ Bailey. Link in the show notes. Frankly, that is the de facto uh, Soundwave Twitter because I, I'm not running a second Twitter. I spend too long on there already. If you want to get in touch, like quickly, at RJ Bailey. I'll sort you out with some more breathing room at your request. What I like about that poem is it goes sour at the end. It's like, it, it, it starts off beautiful and like, oh, if I could do that, I could do, and it's like reminiscing. And as it goes on, you're kind of going, oh, is, yeah, that is lovely. Oh, it's wonderful. And I, when I first uh, listened to that reading, I was actually walking my dog on Castorfin Hill here in Edinburgh. Beautiful scenery, gorgeous, uh, late winter, uh, early spring day, Stunning, the hills all around me amongst the forests, thinking, yeah, isn't nature wonderful? And then you realise, why is he reminiscing about this? And then he's, he just brings in this imagery of uh, the last prey on earth being slaughtered by a pack of hunting animals. I think that's great. And Debbie's voice really suits that as well, because it does have that lovely, soft Scottish accent really works to have that sweetness and that that pleasantness and that connection to the land and then it just goes ah nah the world's destroyed and everything's rubbish the starting place of most great science fiction the world's destroyed and everything's rubbish and also quality bants to have down the pub as well speaking of quality bants hashtag optional we're about to delve into the sonic space this is the section of the programme where I interview a notable person within the science fiction community 
and try not to embarrass myself with my incredibly low IQ and paucity of ambition and dumb questions. This time, I'm going to be chatting with the award-winning author, Anne Charnock. Just be aware that the sound quality was affected by a particularly close solar flare, so there was some interference in the signal. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it anyway. Hello, you're listening to The Sonic Space here on Shoreline of Infinity's Soundwave. I am joined by Anne Charnock. She is a writer, started off with journalistic beginnings, uh, writing in The New Scientist, The Guardian, Financial Times, International Herald, Tribune, and Geographical and more. Her first book was self-published, A Calculated Life, which was later published in a new edition by 47 North. And the second novel, Sleeping Embers of an Ordinary Mind, is set in the past, present and future and took her on a globe-hopping trip around the world. The third novel is Arthur C. Clarke Award 2018 winning Dreams Before the Start of Time and shortlisted for the British Science Fiction Association Best Novel Award. She's also expanded the universe of a calculated life in the novella The Enclave, winning the BSFA Award for Best Short Fiction, and in 2017, she became the interviewer in residence for the Arthur C. Clarke Award. Hello, Anne. How are you doing? Um, I'm great. Thanks, RJ. That was a really uh, great introduction. Comprehensive. Aren't the, yes. about, aren't the about sections on websites good for authors? When you can just go, yeah, that, 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 that. Mention that. Research done. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, but you made it your own. Oh, thank you. That's great. <laughs> Um, I'm developing a new way to say I've not met you like in the flesh. So what yeah. people tend to do is when they do things electronically, like email, they put an E in front of things and, and often take away a letter. So how do you feel if I took away the M from meet and replaced it with an E? So if I was to say to you, nice to eat you. Eat. Yeah. Eat. Like, what you mean with a slight uh, stutter on the e? Yeah. Eat you. E eat you. It's a bit worrying. Yeah. Well, yeah. It sounds a bit carnivorous. It has com. It has. Yeah. Connotations. But as <laughs> as a fan of horror myself as well, I quite like yeah. that. So, although it's probably not going to catch on, is it? Uh, you started something. Let's see. Let's see if it catches on with my other guest. Eat. <laughs> I also like the way it makes you sound silly. Like, it's just not a normal way of saying something. Eat. Um, okay. Uh, so, Anne, um, yeah. what, I, what caught my um, eye particularly is that it seems like you're a well-traveled person. And you've, you've said on the, the pre-interview that you're going traveling again. Your second novel. Um, the research for that uh, took you to Shanghai and Suzhou, is that right? Uh, Suzhou, yes. Suzhou in China, Florence and Bologna in Italy. It's interesting to me that someone who works in science fiction, um, mm. like yourself, uh, is also influenced by real world travel. Is that, is that something that you set out to do, to take aspects of the world? 
or is travel something that you just love and you've just incorporated it accidentally almost into your work? Oh, that's a really interesting question because um, really before I ever thought of being a writer, even before being a, wanting to be a journalist, I really wanted to have adventures. You know, I wanted to travel. So to, I grew up in an era where, you know, people didn't really travel uh, that much uh, unless they were going on, you know, coach trips around Europe or something. You know, when your grannies used to do those kind of <laughs> trips. So I was really desperate to get away to travel. Uh, and I, so my earliest uh, influence, really, was probably uh, Tintin. Oh. Um, and, of course, he was, a, he was a reporter. So maybe, you know, back, lodged back in my mind from, you know, primary school days, that's what I wanted. And then, and then uh, I grew up in Bolton. Um, my mother used to take me to uh, the Egyptology section in the Bolton Museum, which is a very fine collection. So I grew up with Tintin and looking at the mummies in the Egyptology section. So really, it was the travel and the adventure okay, first. Uh, so when I was thinking about what to study, uh, I went for environmental sciences because it kind of sounded a bit outdoorsy. You know, I wasn't really yeah. to do pure science. So so that's where it all started, I guess. So, yeah, the travel comes first, mm -hmm. wanting to wanting to see the world and then fortunately finding myself in a job that allowed me to do that. Mm -hmm. And then it just becomes this huge resource that I can uh, pull into the work. Sure. Because it's, I suppose it's like instant flavour, isn't it? Like you, it's like you don't have to think or imagine or, or do, do all this research. In a way, like you have done research, but you yeah. don't have to sit there poring over book. But you don't have to do boring, I'm not say boring, less interesting research when you can just remember what yes. Shanghai was like and just well, sometimes write that it's, down. It takes, sometimes it takes a while for the penny to drop. Mm. Um, with my first novel where um, I had two, basically two different locations, one was the city centre of Manchester and the other location was out in the enclaves, which were um, uh, really for pe people at the uh, bottom of the heap. Mm -hmm. with the economic heat and I got stuck at that point because I couldn't imagine what these enclaves would look like and I actually put that manuscript away for several months and then the penny dropped I thought oh yes it'll be like uh, those places I saw on that trip to Egypt mm. like the the newly constructed areas of Suez Canal, of the Suez Canal, you know. So once I had that picture in my mind, I could kind of build on that. And with the latest novel, Dreams Before the Start of Time, I knew I wanted to have a, a, a character who travelled, at least travelled to China, mm -hmm. to set against... Uh, the overall theme of the novel and so as soon as I got back from that trip to China I started writing like two days after sure unpacked my suitcases started writing uh -huh. so is that something you 
budget for? Like, I know that's an odd question, but I was just thinking, like, I suppose if you make places up, you don't have to afford to be able to go. Like, in a way, it's a way of traveling to some place. But yes. if you wrote about China but had never been, there would be an inauthenticity to that. Whereas if you write about Alpha Centauri, you can do whatever you want and it doesn't cost you a penny. Well, that's true. I mean, I wouldn't, I'd be nervous about writing about a place if I hadn't been there. Mm. Because obviously, if it's, things will show up. Mm. I suppose in the past, I've always been traveling when um, there has been some funding involved, you know, because I was working as a sure. freelance writer so you know it was all part of um, the plan mm -hmm. you know getting commissioned articles uh, and stuff in advance but this time in fact the china trip was quite fortuitous because um uh my son's uh, girlfriend was living in china and uh she said why don't you come and visit before i leave and so i just grabbed the opportunity you know i, I just felt i couldn't pass pass that up mm -hmm. so that was a, a huge help yeah I'm also interested. I'm I'm uh, my bread and butter uh, income is uh, as an audiobook narrator. Oh, great! Yes, and I work a lot with self-published authors. Yeah. Uh, or self-published rights holders, and I note that your first book, A Calculated Life, uh, was self-published. Yes, indeed. Um, can I ask you? Did you originally want to just self-publish? Was that an automatic, well, I'll just self-publish it? Or did you go after publishers? Or did you perhaps not have the confidence to go after publishers, but would like to have? Well, let me tell you the story in Precy. I Actually, I self-published with a very heavy heart. You know, mm -hmm. I didn't really... It wasn't my chosen route because, you know, having, you know, worked in journalism and I was used to, you know, getting published. Mm -hmm. So I had hoped that, you know, with the bio I had, I might be able to get a, a literary agent with the manuscript. But I, I, I couldn't. I just um, uh, I just uh, kept failing. So, you know, I had a bit of interest, but no one would actually sign me up. So I was there I was with a manuscript and no literary agent. And in the end, in fact, um, one of my sons said to me, will you just self-publish it? You know, just get <laughs> just get it out there. Will yeah. you? So I thought, all right, I will. So, you know, I did the whole thing that self-publishers have to do, which is, you know, start blogging. I mean, I'd done some blogging before, but, you know, I started doing all the marketing and and I wanted to do all the formatting myself because I'm into, you know, uh, I'm into desktop publishing and all that anyway. Uh, so that's what I did. I released it as a self-published novel. You know, a bit, bit sad about it, but, you know, I thought I'd just have to get on and write another book. So that I did that, and, um, and my friends very kindly brought a few copies, and a few copies were sold elsewhere, you know, when I did these various promotions that you can do on Kindle Direct Publishing, you know. And then, much to my surprise, about four or five months after I'd released it, I 
got um, an email from 47 North uh, offering to do a new edition of it. So, you know, I jumped at the chance, really. Uh, otherwise, you know, perhaps I'd have three self-published novels now, you know. But, no, I just, I just grabbed the opportunity and, really, I haven't looked back. So, in a... In, in an alternate timeline um, where you would have three self-published novels, do you think you would have gone on to be disappointed? Would you have even written three novels? Uh, well, it's a good question. I, I maybe, maybe I would have done. I think I was just frustrated with the first one. You know, I thought, well, this is a decent novel. Sure. I'll put it out there. Um yeah, I, it was definitely in my mind. I just had to keep on writing, and perhaps the next one would snag a bit of interest. But what I hadn't realised was at the time I was looking for an agent. Um, and if I'm right, there there, were, there was no UK female author of science fiction who was under contract mm -hmm. to a UK publisher. So really the women science fiction writers weren't very uh, visible at the time. So it perhaps was a bad time to be uh, pitching. Sure. But anyway, it's all turned out fine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, the stigma has is disappearing as well for self-published um, authors. I know that there's you're not the only case of people who have self-published and wait, later gone on to get book deals. Yes. Um, and I also I, I like the fact that if the stigma goes, it's it must be quite empowering for authors to be yes. able to to not feel you know, you felt bad about it, but it, it would must be quite empowering to not to be able to put it out there and one day not be like, ah, this is second best to being published. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It'd be an equally oh, yeah. valid choice. Yes, you're right. The, the stigma ha ha has dissipated. I mean, it's still there to an extent, mm -hmm. but I think people are willing to accept there's really good work out there, uh, often written by people who've come to writing after um, having a busy career mm. um, and have a lot of experience to draw on. You know, so I, th I think that's happening. I mean, I mean, what I did that I think did help was that when I had my first full uh, draft, when I thought, well, this is as good as I can get it, I did send it off for a, a structural edit and paid for that mm -hmm. because I didn't know what I was doing right and I didn't know what I was doing wrong. So I thought I'll end up changing things that are fine and not changing things that are rubbish. Sure, yeah. So I sent it off and, and that really was a, that was a really good, that was Money well spent. Good. Because uh, I got back some really good pointers, as much as anything, just saying, oh, this scene really works. Mm. And I'm like, oh, yes, I see what you mean. I see why it works. Yeah. Uh, whereas, you know, there might be a, a tick in my writing style and say, oh, yeah, I didn't know I had that tick. Mm -hmm. uh, so really, in a way, you can almost get 90% there as a self-published author, but I think it's always worth, one way or another, trying to get some uh, really good structural advice, mm -hmm. structural writing style advice. Some people go to um, 
workshops, you go to writing groups, or do a, a an MA in creative writing. But as I'd just gone through a whole fine art education, I thought there's no way I can afford to start doing a, a master's yeah. now in creative writing. So mm-hmm. I thought I'll just pay for um, a one-off sure. uh, edit. And that really was... That was really worthwhile. Mm-hmm. So where did the drive to do a fine art qualification come from? Um, well, when I when I was uh, a journalist, I I, I was often travelling, as, you, as uh, you'd noticed. And so I was often in a position of having to take my own photographs. And in those days, I had to get permission from the NUJ to take photographs because of a lot of demarcation issues. Mm-hmm. So anyway... In, as it turned out, I realized that I enjoyed the photography as much as I did the writing. So after taking um, a bit of a break from journalism with my kids and um, doing some commercial writing, I thought, oh, do you know, I really, I really loved the photography side. Why don't I go down that avenue? And that's when I thought, you know, I think I'll do a foundation in art and design. So mm-hmm. I did that, at, did that at the local college. And then, I, you know, I just thought, oh, well, perhaps I should uh, do a, perhaps I should um, do a degree. Mm-hmm. And so one thing rolled into another. And then <laughs> the next thing I know, I've done several years and come out, you know, done the whole, done the whole thing. Yeah. Um, it was towards the end of my MA that, in fact, my studio tutor, uh, John Hyatt, he said to me, why don't you try writing a short story as a way of just approaching your interests in a different way? So I wrote a couple of short stories over the next fortnight. I thought, wow, I should have been doing this before. You know, I just really <laughs> loved it, the yeah. freedom of not having to fact check. And, mm. you know, <laughs> you could just make it up. <laughs> and... Uh, and in a way, although I love the fine art, I, I was kind of from that that point on, I was very kind of divided between, you know, do I want to focus on the art or do I want to? I kept I kept carving out time where I could carry on with writing. Mm. So I was doing the two things in parallel for about seven or eight years. And so, where did the germ of the idea of a calculated life come from? Well, it was really it's an extension of my um, uh, master's in fine art, where I was really looking at kind of uh, concepts of the uncanny and the difference between human and machine intelligence. And I was looking at issues like uh, how humans are uncertain in a way that mm-hmm. mach- machines aren't. And so I was using different medium. You know, like I, I worked a lot with text, sometimes painting, sometimes drawing. And so in a way, uh, I started writing A Calculated Life, seeing it almost as another medium mm. uh, to approach, you know, my research interests. And uh, I loved how direct it is, that text is so much more direct, whereas with an art project, you're kind of connecting with the viewer in a different way. Mm. Uh, it's in a kind of non-verbal way often. It's it's more to do with impressions and feelings, emotions. Um, 
whereas uh, with writing fiction, it is more direct. I mean, you, obviously, you can't control how people read your book. Yeah. You know, people will have different reactions to it and take different things from it. Uh, but I did, I did like the immediacy so of it. Can you tell us a little bit about um, this second book, Sleeping Embers? What's the story, the plot about? If you can give us the elevator pitch. Uh, it was set in uh, Renaissance Florence, present-day London and China. And a future London, and it was really, it was really looking at. Um, it was, it's really a feminist uh, novel in that it's looking at how certain names get left behind mm -hmm. in 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 history. So in the in the in the first section, I'm looking at um, imagining the story of a, a real-life person called Antonia Uccello, who was the daughter of the well-known, uh, famous author Paolo Uccello, who basically invented um, uh, perspective uh, drawing and painting. Mm -hmm. So I was really imagining what happened to Antonia. That involved a lot of research. Uh, I did actually find some information. So basically, this isn't an elevator pitch, is it? <laughs> it's fine. It's better. It's better. <laughs> so uh, I should have said synopsis. <laughs> it's the worst thing to ask, you see. What's the book about? It's like, oh, my God, where do I start? <laughs> um, so in contrast, to, so I'm looking in the past at a, uh, an actual girl who was a painter, famous uh, artist father and how her life progressed. But I look at her life through the lens of an art historian in the future who is herself trying to raise women artists who've been neglected in the historical record. And in the present day, I have a, a, a male painter. He's a copyist. He's a legal copyist. He copies famous paintings for, you know, wealthy clients. And and he has a daughter, Tony. So I'm really looking at the lives of a, a young girl in the present day who travels to China with her father and looking at uh, uh, the Renaissance um, time, Antonia, really look, using the future as a way of reflecting on the past. It sounds like a fascinating subject. <laughs> well, um, I have to say, I loved writing it. Yeah? Which has been your favourite book to write, then? Well, that's a difficult one. Uh, I suppose the middle one, I, I really got a kick out of that because I could bring a lot of my experience, not just with art history, but as a practising artist. Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, I found that was it was really... At the time of writing it, I thought, no one is going to like this novel apart from me and perhaps six other people. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a kind of a, almost like a, a, guilt, a guilty pleasure in spending so much time writing that novel. Well, I mean, to be fair, it, The Guardian included it in the best science fiction oh, yes. and fantasy books of 2015. So yeah, it mu more than it. must have six people, yeah. More than six people and yourself must have liked it. Um, but then with dreams, that was very. I I really loved writing that as well. Mm. 
because I, I'm, I'm interested in structure and I wrote it as a series of vignettes. So I, I'm kind of dropping into five generations of two families, dropping into them over a period of uh, 80 years mm-hmm. from in the near future to the further future, just looking at how each generation in these families is having to cope with this new shock of the new. Mm-hmm. You know, we all think we know... Uh, We all think we're unshockable, but we just don't know what lies in the future, do we? So I was really exploring that uh, with a view, with my eye on fertility science, possibility of artificial wombs in the next 40 or 50 years, and just what the fallout is, what the unintended consequences are. Mm -hmm. Without kind of making a judgment, I'm kind of just saying, you know, this could plausibly happen, and how will that sit within people's lives sure. how will that affect relationships uh within between two people between within families you know mm. so that i had a lot of fun writing that Is because that... it's vignettes it's almost it's not like it's separate short stories mm. there, there are connections between characters but i could take quite different approaches in different vignettes mm-hmm. um, from a writing point of view that was uh that was a challenge and and i got a, a a lot of pleasure from doing that it sounds like science fiction is a means to explore themes you or ideas that you want to explore rather than you want to write a science fiction book what can it be about is that right yes because i mean science fiction it is it is a a a political form of writing Mm -hmm. and and as such i think it's a way of reflecting on the present day sure so Uh, you know as i said with my with my second novel it's, it's using the future as a lens so that we can f- reflect on where we are now and where we might be going. Sure. Uh, can you see yourself writing m- more non-science fiction? I think there's always a temptation to project into the future. Mm. I mean, I don't understand why any writer wouldn't want to do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, even in the form of a flash forward. Sure. Um, I I do like novels that are contemporary mm-hmm. that have a science fiction angle, such as well, people don't think of Barbara Kingsolver as a as a science fiction writer, but she wrote um, a really interesting novel, Flight Behavior, which could be classed as science fiction, or at least having a big science content. Sure. And when I was um, when I was shortlisted for the Philip K. Dick, the book that won was Ben Ben H. Winters, who mm. wrote uh, The Last Policeman. That was fascinating because it was about um, an asteroid that they know is going to hit the Earth mm-hmm. and the Earth will be obliterated. But the, the book is about how people react to that knowledge, mm. to that information. Do they stay in the job? Do they run away? Do, is there chaos and and so that that in a way was science fiction, but using it to look at almost like a social experiment. Have you always enjoyed science fiction? Uh, yeah, I mean, I came into it really partly um, 
again through more of the, on the political side, you know, through George Orwell's 1984 and, and Animal Farm, the animation. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I suppose Margaret Atwood's uh, The Handmaid's Tale, again more on the political side. And I think then uh, alongside those, it was the films that were coming out. You know, so 2001, A Space Odyssey, mm-hmm. and then uh, Blade Runner. And in Blade Runner, I was really fascinated by the character of Rachel. I wanted to know more about her story. So mm-hmm. I kind of had her in mind when I was writing my uh, first novel, I calculated. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I suppose it's easy as well with the films to fall in love with the aesthetic of science fiction as well, isn't it? Because mm. it's all... It is going on holiday. It's going travelling. It is. Even if it's somewhere where you wouldn't ever choose to go in real life. That's true. I think the difference is is that, you know, you can tell when a story, a science fiction story is better suited to the screen Mm. because it it needs the visuals. It needs the the kind of epic nature that film uh, can give. And... Um, whereas other ideas are better expressed in, in prose. Sure. You know, getting, obviously, you know, getting inside people's heads in a way that you can't mm-hmm. with uh, dramatic form. Sure. Uh, so, yeah, I think science fiction, you, you have two very definite uh, camps in my mind. Most of my, my writing is very much character-based. Mm. And... Uh, so it lends itself to uh, a different, a different dramatic form than the epics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, see. Mm-hmm. you recently went back to the world of your first novel. What made you want to go back uh, with the novella, the Enclave, to the world of a calculated life, specifically to yeah. return to a world when it's possible to create a new one? Yeah, I, I, so far I've written standalone novels, uh, whereas a lot of authors write in series. Mm. And then I was asked by uh, Newcom Press if I wanted to write a novella for them. I don't know, they, it just came to me straight away. I just thought, you know, I'd really like to revisit that world, but in a different way with different characters. Sure and focus on the people at the bottom of the economic pile. Mm -hmm. And um, I'd just written Dreams Before, and in that there were three chapters written in uh, first person, and it was the first time I'd really used first person, and I loved it. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I know what, I'll write a novella in in three chapters from two points of view. Mm. So you get this kind of... uh, uh, unreliable narrator thing going on. So I have two viewpoint characters, all in first person, and I just felt that was a really good way with a novella to get straight into that world of the enclaves mm. and really explore what's happening at the, at the right at the bottom of the pile uh, involving uh, uh, not only uh, people living outside Manchester, who are low income, but also the pe- um, people who are being kind of enslaved, you know, migrant workers. Sure. But, yeah. So it was just kind of the underbelly, underbelly mm-hmm. of the previous uh, novel, kind of touching on it. Seems very timely as well when you 
mention the migrant workers yeah. being enslaved. Yes, it was just it just seemed logical that that would be going on mm -hmm. because I set it in a in the future and climate change was definitely in the backdrop of uh, a calculated life because Manchester's become the new Tuscany of Europe, you know, growing citrus crops and mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> it's uh, so that was kind of the fun side of that sure. dystopia. Um, is there uh, an, is there an issue with because um, obviously that's published by Newcom Press. Uh, and A Calculated Life is published by 47 yeah. North. Was there any yeah. frac uh, friction there by no, taking your world to a different publisher? No, not at all. But obviously the first thing I did was to speak to my editor mm -hmm. and say, look, I'm thinking of doing this. Can you check that it's okay with my contract? And he said, yes, it's fine with your contract. And uh, so, you know, I obviously kept him, that's Jason Kirk, kept him in the, in the loop about what I was doing, and yeah, yeah, there was not not a problem. Oh well, yeah. that kind of surprises me because I know people can be well. Certain certain, I know that people look after their intellectual property rights sometimes, but mm. that I so, But in the same same token, people who read the Enclave first perhaps would then be encouraged to go and yes. read a calculated life. So That's how they looked at it, and, and, and because they stand alone. You know, mm -hmm. you can read one before the other. Sure. You know, it doesn't really matter. You know, they were very positive about it. Well, that's that's yeah. good to hear. That's good to yeah. hear. Uh, you just need to just keep everybody informed. Sure. Um, so there's no surprises. Mm -hmm. And um, just briefly, how did you become the interviewer in residence for the Arthur C. Clarke Award? Oh, because yes. <laughs> you, you mentioned that you do interviews in email uh, before we started yes. this interview. Um, and that is a different aspect of writing. Yes. Well, what happened was I'd already been on my own blog. I was already uh, doing a lot of writing where I'd report on author events. And then I, I did do a couple of conversations because as a journalist, I just kind of thought, actually, I don't like this standard Q&A thing. It seems mm -hmm. a bit restricted. So I um, approached a couple of authors and said, let's try this. Uh, and um, it seemed to work really well. And then Tom Hunter, who's the director of the Arthur C. Clarke Award, had noticed those and asked if I would be interested in doing them uh, under the banner of the Ada Lovelace Day, mm -hmm. because they were having this. Arthur C. Clarke Award had a kind of joint project with the Ada Lovelace Day to try and encourage uh women to go into STEM subjects, science, technology, engineering, mathematics. And so it fitted quite nicely with that. So um, then they, gave, <laughs> they invented this title of um, interviewer in residence, <laughs> which I thought was quite cool. So, yeah, it's just a fun way. And I, I really enjoy it because it's a way of having a, a really uh, educational um conversation with another writer educational for me as much sure. as you know anyone who reads the conversation learns a lot from it and it allows you to get kind of a bit more under the surface so anyone who wants to read those you can either, either go to the bio page on my blog or go to medium to the arthur c clark award account and you'll see uh, those interviews coming up and it's the ada lovelace conversations 
Excellent. Thank you. So thank you very much for uh, chatting to me, Anne. Thank you. It's been uh, a great chat. Yeah, I've really it's, enjoyed uh, it. Really, it's been been lovely questions. Lovely. Thank you. Yeah, oh, I'm really. pleased coming from someone such as yourself. That's a compliment. <laughs> No, it's lovely. No, it's not what uh, I thought you'd be straight into asking me, you know, what's the book about? But to actually start off by talking about the adventures, that was really a uh, uh, great approach. Good. Thank you. Well, um, I shall let you get back to your work. Yes. Uh, thanks for joining <laughs> us. <laughs> and uh, I will go and walk my dog. <laughs> thanks, RJ. That's All been right. brilliant. Lovely. Thank you. Nice to eat you. <laughs> Eat, indeed. <laughs> See you later. Really enjoyed my chat with Anne, and if you want to check out more of her work, simply go to annecharnock.com and you will find all the relevant links there. I'm not sure why I've been emphasising the second syllable of Charnock. I've done it again. I didn't even mean to. Charnock. I imagine it's Char... Anne, if you're listening, tweet me. Um, should I be placing equal emphasis on both syllables? Charnock sounds a bit Klingon, doesn't it? Charnock. Um, but... Maybe it's just Charnock, and it's just a silly affectation of mine that I don't know where I've got it from. Too much Star Trek Discovery. Speaking of discovering things, let's find out what's happening in the wider world of Shoreline, where you can get more sweet, sweet science fiction and speculative fiction goodness. Well, recently we've had the publication of The Chosen of the First Age, edited by my co-producer, Noel Chidwick. After only three years in existence, Shoreline of Infinity Science Fiction Magazine won, last year, the British Fantasy Society Award for Best Magazine or Periodical. It has been splashed about a bit, you may have noticed if you've been on the website. And to celebrate the occasion, we've decided to publish a selection of stories from the issues 1 to 10, including the very special edition 8.5. Any story and every story could have been chosen, of course, from those first 10 issues. But for that, you're going to have to buy the first 10 issues. The stories in this book, however, are chosen as together they are the ambassadors for the magazine. Together, Shoreline of Infinity, us, not really me, but I wanted to say us so I don't establish some kind of precedent that I'm not Shoreline of Infinity. I feel, I feel like I've staked my claim now. Well, anyway, Shoreline of Infinity felt they represented the character of the magazine. Welcoming, challenging, enthralling, and uh, just, uh, just a little bit mischievous. And of course, they're effing good stories. It's been published in all formats, and you can find it simply by going to Shoreline of Infinity and searching for The Chosen from the First Age. Or just Google Shoreline of Infinity the Chosen from the First Age. I'm sure you'll get the link. Next up, we have got issue 14 of Shoreline of Infinity, the main mag, the backbone of this entire operation, due out on the 15th of March. Writers in that issue include Kat Hellison, Ken McLeod, Andrew Reichard, Emma Levin, 
E.H. Young, Rhiannon Grist. I've met her, actually. She's good people. Good person. Good live performer. Check her out. Thomas Broderick and Vicky Jarrett. There's also a column from Ruth E.G. Booth. That's, that's a good name, isn't it? And Science and Science Fiction by Pippa Goldschmidt, who is a lovely person as well. I've in actually interviewed her. You'll hear that in a forthcoming Sonic Space. Also out is A Practical Guide to the Resurrected, originally published by Freight Books. Now, Shoreline of Infinity has obtained the distribution rights. It's a collection of SF-related medical stories. Adam Roberts says 20 stories about the future of medicine, so cutting-edge they could be scalpels. The SF Doctor will see you now. There's one in there in particular which is about bringing your wife back from the dead which is absolutely, like, chilling. Really good. I would recommend that. If you're lucky enough to live in or around or just damn close enough to Edinburgh, every month there's Shoreline of Infinity's Event Horizon. It's in Frankenstein's Bang in the City Centre, down in the basement where we belong and, frankly, where we should be kept for all time. There's live performances and readings of stories poetry, music, and all kinds of things. We had Martin Page, the author of great pulpy science fiction, doing sword fighting. It was incredible. Very loud and noisy, but all the more exciting for it. Also, have you got time for a quick coffee on Monday, RJ, to discuss your complete lack of professional... Uh, that's where the email ends. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can do. Just give me a tweet at RJ Bailey or email rjbailey at shorelineofinfinity.com. I want to know what your favourite, very obscure science fiction or science fact, fact is. Give me an email rjbailey at shorelineofinfinity.com or tweet me at rjbailey. Don't forget to check out our Patreon. Just search for Shoreline of Infinity. If you can't find it now, then it's not active yet. Sorry. We tried our best. We missed the deadline. But it should be by the time you hear this. You'll be able to find Anne Charnock's extended interview on there where we discuss all kinds of off-topic things, including restaurants. We do this show once every two weeks, okay? And if the Patreon goes like a roaring success that I hope it will be, then, hey, we'll be able to knock them out to a much higher... That sounds awful, doesn't it? Knock them out. <laughs> Produce lovingly crafted, high-quality audio programming for you to enjoy. Perhaps even more often than that. Wouldn't that be lovely? I've got my eye on Isotope RX-7 to streamline this process and make the sound quality even better for you. Anyway, the good folks at Nuclear Blast Record Label have been kind enough to open their Nuclear Blast doors to us here at Soundwave and allow us to pick through their vaults and find some science fiction musical goodness. Many rock, hard rock, mostly metal, let's be honest, bands sing about science fiction concept and themes, and I myself, having my own uh, heavy metal internet radio program, have links with heavy metal labels, and so I am delighted to be able to showcase this often overlooked outlet for science fiction. This episode's track is from the Dutch Symphonic Metal Masters Epica. Don't worry, it's fairly accessible, I promise you. 
and very, very catchy. The story of how this song and this EP started in Japan when Epica were playing a show there in Tokyo. They were visited after the show by a man named Revo. Revo is the band leader of Linked Horizon, a Japanese musical group who perform lots of music for video games, anime, as well as creating albums and standalone music in its own right. Revo was and is a fan of Epica and took influences from them when creating the music for the anime series Attack on Titan, an adaptation of the comic book of the same name in which a kind of European, kind of feudal, but also quite scientifically advanced, almost steampunk society within giant castle walls has to defend themselves from marauding, man-eating, and very naked giants. Revo visited them in their dressing room after the show and asked them if they would kindly make English-language covers of his songs. The band accepted the proposal and started recording in the summer of 2017. In December 2017, Epica released Epica vs. Attack on Titan songs, cover versions in English of Japanese songs for an anime originally inspired by Epica's music. The theory is, if Revo covered these songs back into Japanese, it would create an unstoppable feedback loop, which would eventually become nothing but white noise and turn into that noise of the universe. You know, that terrible droning that would just get louder and louder until it consumed all of mankind and everyone's ears and brains would explode. Luckily, the cycle has stopped here with this critically acclaimed EP by Epica. And so, here is the most, in my mind, striking and recognisable song from the EP. I'm off to paint pizza and eat gene stealers. I'll leave you with this crimson bow and arrow. We'll see you in two weeks' time. Until then, I'll see you in the sound wave.
Soundwave was written and hosted by director Overtect Verbistect Loquinist Voxtect RJ Bailey and co-produced by RJ Bailey and Overtect Noel Chidwick. Music by Tunetect Alex Storer. Story and poem curated by Verbis Curate Voxtex, Debbie Cannon and Jonathan Whiteside. The Starkitect was written by Barry Sharman and narrated by Voxtect Sue Guyford. Starscape was written by J.S. Watts and narrated by Debbie Cannon. Sonic Space is produced and presented by R.J. Bailey. Crimson Bow and Arrow by Epica from the EP Epica vs. Attack on Titan Songs is courtesy of Nuclear Blast.